Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace. Once again, my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll be talking about what the day of small things in Zechariah's prophecy should teach us about our own humble circumstances, about how liturgy and worship and the church calendar can shape us for discipleship, and what the transfiguration revealed about who Jesus really is. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to the commentary at Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and you can always find us online at graceforsufalls.org. One of our goals for the commentary is to dig a little deeper into themes from Grace's preaching and worship. There's only so much you can cover during a service, and sometimes there are scholarly insights or stories that don't really fit in a sermon, but might be helpful as you're reflecting on what you've heard. After my recent sermon on Zechariah 4, Cameron wanted to spend some time unpacking the day of small things referred to in the prophecy, and I was happy to oblige. So, Pastor Mark, you preached from Zechariah 4 this last Sunday, and I just wanted to read a section out of that that stood out to me. This is from kind of the middle of the chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So if I was reading that on my own, I would probably pass right over it. Do you maybe want to summarize a little bit about what the significance of that phrase, the day of small things is and uh, what, what this plumb line is talking about? Sure. Yeah. So in context, we're talking about the rebuilding of the temple by the exiles who have returned and the work has begun. And then there's been a decade of delay and now they've recommenced that work. So the foundation has been laid by Zerubbabel, who is the governor. And the question is whether or not this thing's ever going to be finished, whether that this huge work can be completed the day of small things is is the present day where they look around and they see the the humble circumstances of the temple it's it's not anything like the glory of Solomon's temple uh, and it meditating on that difference leads them to despise the times that they live in uh, to have contempt for you know this day because it's a day of small things that's kind of the expression. And so the significance of the prophecy is that we're being told that Zerubbabel, who laid the foundation, is also going to put the capstone on it, going to finish that work. And when you see him doing this, you will have no reason to despise this day of beginnings because you will see it come to completion. And so the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand is one of those 
interesting moments in the Hebrew that it's a little ambiguous. It's traditionally translated as a plumb line, so a stone on a line that kind of tells you whether or not you're you're plumb, you know, in building. But it may be the case that what this is referring to is an ancient practice of burying uh, precious objects, jewels, whatever, treasure inside the structure of the building, something you do kind of to mark the moment of completion. The work will be completed, and the glory of that completion will completely change the way you look at this moment in time where it is just beginning. And so obviously there's a connection here because Zerubbabel is a type of Christ and is pointing us ultimately to Christ as the author and finisher of our faith so that for us, the day of small things would be the day that we find ourselves in, you know, in the spiritual struggles, the obstacles that we face in a bigger sense, we might think of it as as the starting of the church, the humble beginnings of the body of Christ and a glorious future that's been promised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love thinking about our own lives like that, um, maybe because the Christian life isn't always glamorous and it's easy for us to to look at our lives and say, well, this just feels like a small thing. You know, my my significance as a Christian, this is a day of small things or maybe even our own church sometimes, you know, this feels, you know, this small body of Christ feels like a a day of small things, whatever it is, but being told in Zechariah not to despise that day because of the the promised fulfillment. I think that's, that's really rich, really helpful. I think, you know, if you ask yourself, why do we despise this? You know, why would you despise humble circumstances or humble beginnings? I think it's because they seem out of step with expectations. You know, that's the problem is if we're the people of God uh, and this is the house of God, then shouldn't it be the greatest and most glorious of all? And and so if it's not, then it leads you to wonder, are we who we say we are? In the life of the church, those kinds of doubts are definitely present. And, and just in our individual lives, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. It is a huge emphasis in certainly in the evangelical church, on the idea of sort of doing great things for God and sanctification as a sort of self-improvement slash self-care regimen that produces a better person who achieves great things. And you're constantly measuring the reality up against those expectations. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you also mentioned it in reference, I think, to the infant baptism that we had on Sunday, sure. or maybe just to a child in general. You you mentioned the birth of a child may be a day of small things, but nobody treats it that way. Nobody despises that day because we know the life that's coming. Right, or nobody should. Yes. I mean, we do, we do, yeah. right? But but I think that's why the analogy works, because you have to think of of what small thing are you talking about. If you're talking about a baby... We don't despise the helplessness of the baby because we see all that potential, you know, and what the future will bring. It's just that when we look at the church, just as they looked at the temple, we don't see it as a a sort of seed which will develop and grow. We see it as a final word. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So maybe the other sacrament, the Lord's Supper, could be another, you know, recently we've been taking communion with these really small 
kind of plasticky wafers and uh, some juice. And sometimes those feel like a day of small things. It, it feels insignificant. And you have done a great job over these last few months to point us to what these symbols are pointing to, to not get caught up in the smallness of that, of this sacrament, um, but to look to the fulfillment of the, the promises that they represent. Right. I mean, we judge these things on a spectrum. Our prepackaged communion elements, th- that's really humble, you know, and, and, and I hate doing it this way. You know, I'm sure everybody hates doing it this way in despise comparison. It. Right. We yeah. despise <laughs> having to do this. And, and you tell yourself, if we could go back to doing it the way we were doing it, or even in a fancier way, maybe in a larger building and, and with nicer stuff surrounding us, that that would be doing justice to it. And that's the mistake thinking that that we're on a spectrum where the humble surroundings of today could be brought much nearer the the glorious reality if we could just improve the circumstances a little bit right so at least in that sense i think god knows what he's doing in humbling us because it it cuts some of that pretentiousness out reminds us that no matter how well we do things in this life, no matter how impressive the way the word is proclaimed or the sacraments are administered may seem, it is all just a day of small things in comparison to what is to come. I think it's good to remember that. We've just hit a major milestone on the Christian calendar, transitioning from the season after Epiphany and Transfiguration into the season of Lent, beginning on Ash Wednesday. Some people wonder why at Grace we observe the Christian calendar, and others wonder why we do it in our own particular way, which may be different from what you've experienced elsewhere. Cameron, Growing up, did you have a strong sort of observance of the church calendar and your church experience, or is it new to you? The denomination I was in, which is the LCMS, Lutheran Church, uh, they did observe it pretty strictly. I don't think I ever noticed it, though. Um, So I I know that I'm I'm sure it was mentioned, but no, I I don't remember ever thinking about these days as very significant. Sure, sure. I think... It's probably typical that in mainline Christian denominations, the church calendar is observed, whether it's you're conscious of what's going on or not. And then in more evangelical congregations, with the exception of Christmas and Easter, it tends to be neglected. And one of the the things at Grace that I think makes us a little bit unique is that we really do try to embody those words of Tim Keller's about bringing back together Christian worship and Christian theology, you know, that, that they shouldn't be separated. And so what we've done is let's say appropriated 
the traditional church calendar, adapted it somewhat, and we observe it in idiosyncratic ways, right? So in some respects, if you had grown up conscious of the rhythms of you know, ordinary time and the Christmas season or the Easter season, that sort of thing, you would recognize a lot of these emphases at grace, but they're all differences as well. You know, there are differences in the way that we observe them. A, a great example being, of course, we're now uh, in the season of Lent, uh, which begin with Ash Wednesday. And we do have an Ash Wednesday service, but it is noticeably lacking in some of the hallmarks we associate with Ash Wednesday. For example, the imposition of ashes. We don't, we don't have ashes, but we do have a worship service and readings and songs where we reflect on the depth of the season in, in preparation. We're mindful of the regulative principle and are trying to be careful always not to introduce traditions of men and give them sort of a equal standing with God. We're not inventing new sacraments because we are dissatisfied with the two that Christ instituted. At the same time, it's really helpful in forming disciples to have a consciousness of the way that the story of the Bible and the, the time, the rhythms of our own life correspond to each other. Right. Yeah, that's, that's good. So the point is not to just take the tradition because it's the tradition, but like you said, to adopt things, appropriate things to, to reinforce worship and discipleship. I think that's a good way of putting it because a, a, a traditionalist, someone who just wants to do the traditional thing, would sometimes be very frustrated with the way that we are playing fast and loose with right. their sense of what the tradition is supposed to be, you know? And all I can say in my defense is that, that the reason is we're, we're attempting to use these things for a purpose, which is discipleship, right? which is forming worshipers. And so in the same way that the liturgy of our worship service is centered around all of the different aspects of the Christian life. You know, what should we do as Christians? Well, we should confess our faith. We should repent of our sins. We should read scripture. We should pray. We should give. And all of those basic commitments of discipleship are things that we do and touch upon, you know, kind of teach about on a week-to-week -week basis. It's the same way with the bigger calendar as well. Like we want to be conscious of these things so that we have in Advent a focus on anticipating the coming of Christ. And then in Lent, a focus on anticipating the resurrection and the atonement that precedes it. We look forward to the return of Christ and we look forward to the, the ultimate fulfillment of all God's promises. And so these are just ways to build our lives around that anticipation. So one question I have is, what do you think is lost if a church or a denomination chooses not to follow the calendar? Or is anything, is anything really lost at all? Is it just kind of an optional thing? My first tendency is to say, well, you know, we do what we do, and I'm grateful that we can do it. And I don't want to you know, cast aspersions on anyone who's doing it differently. I always feel like the important thing is that there is a place 
where we can worship the way that we're worshiping. So having said that, just from my own personal experience, because I did not grow up with a sense of uh, church time, you know, in the Christian year, any more than I grew up with a sense of liturgy, I can say I felt an impoverishment in terms of the texture of worship, the parts of worship, where in terms of liturgy, you know, the liturgy I grew up with was basically the 50-50, you know, half music, half content delivery. You know, we're going to do some singing, then we're going to do some talking, and we'll obviously take up a collection between the two, you know, or something like that. And uh, the basic revival meeting, you know, format that became traditional worship. So discovering the real tradition of Christian worship turned me around from a person who only cared about the content, in air quotes, to a person who loved worship and understood the value of it. And I, I would say the same thing as well with the church calendar. I mean, what I appreciate is the way that I'm focused on the Christian story throughout the year, that I'm always thinking about how my time relates to what we might call Bible time, constantly having an opportunity to go back and reflect on, on certain themes. You know, that one day every year, we're going to be thinking about the transfiguration. And I think it's good to, to have a day set aside where uh, no matter what else is going on, I'm going to think a little bit about the meaning of Christ's transfiguration. I think it's interesting, too, that secular society has its own liturgies. And I think if you, if you put aside the church calendar, I, I have at times even found myself starting to see my own life in terms of you know, the secular events that mark the year, whether it's New Year's Eve or the Super Bowl, you know, just whatever kind of things are happening. Like we have these secular holidays too that that do kind of orient our years. But the problem with that is they don't always point us to God or reference us to the gospel. And I think that's where the, the church calendar comes in and kind of points us back in the right direction. So it maybe the question isn't should we have the liturgy or should we not, but which kind of liturgy do we do we want to abide by? Absolutely. If you don't observe the Christian calendar in church, you're still observing a calendar, right? It's Super Bowl Sunday, Mother's Day, you know, back to school. Like there are all of these events in the life of most churches that are like these big days, right? That you celebrate. And a lot of them are not related to the Christian calendar or the biblical story at all. In the same way that, you know, a lot of churches take the sacraments out of their normal practice, but introduce into the gaps new practices. You know, you may not baptize covenant children, but you dedicate them. Those gaps are filled because something should go there. So yeah, maybe you don't observe the five ecumenical feasts, but you are constantly aware of when the Super Bowl falls and the ministry opportunities associated with that, Mother's Day, Father's Day, whatever, Veterans Day, you know, whatever it is that the church can kind of organize its message around. And so, yeah, I think realistically, what we're trying to do is organize our message around the message of Jesus Christ. 
Well, we recently observed Transfiguration Sunday, and I thought maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking about it here. We didn't spend too much time talking about it on Sunday. We we heard a reading from the gospel, but so kind of a two-pronged question I thought was one, why why do you think the church calendar decided to include that? And then two, what what does the event of the transfiguration really mean for us? First, let me say something about you know, the emphasis in, in the service. So we observe the church calendar, but we don't orient every service around whatever day it happens to be on the church calendar. So transfiguration is a good example where the call to worship came from the gospel account of the transfiguration. Our lectionary reading included Mark's very succinct account of the same events, but the sermon wasn't oriented around transfiguration, and we didn't do a kind of breakdown of transfiguration. If you did that every year, right, it, it might become repetitive eventually. But uh, it is, I think you said earlier, in the background. And that's actually by design, that it's, it's not that the trajectory of the ministry is jumping around one sort of calendar date to another. It's that in the back of our minds, we always have this sense of where we are in the Christian year, and occasionally it comes to the foreground. Sometimes it's just in the background, and this is a good example of one of those instances where it's, it's you know, not in the foreground, but it is there, and it is reflected on. Right. So maybe... Easter is a good example of when it's in the foreground. You know, yeah. it's really prominent what what we're celebrating, and you're going to talk about the resurrection for sure in the sermon, but maybe not here. It's you know, a reading is is fine. You were asking why is the transfiguration part of the Christian year? I don't have any special insight into you know, sort of which days are called out, but but it strikes me that we're always looking for the pivotal moments in the story of Christ, to kind of mark those moments and remember them. And the transfiguration, although the accounts in the Gospels are succinct, not always as succinct as, as Mark's Gospel, but, but they leave a lot out. They're not nearly as dramatized as a modern account would be. But this is still a hugely significant, game-changing moment in the ministry of Jesus. And so I think it, it makes sense if you're looking for moments in the life of Jesus prior to the crucifixion and resurrection, but after the birth, the transfiguration really is a pivotal moment. Hmm. Yeah, well, maybe you could say a little bit about why, because so it, in my mind, I compare the transfiguration to the ascension a little bit. It's, a, it's one of those events where Jesus does something that's a little bit out of the ordinary. It's not quite like a miracle. It's something, you know, it, something is elevated. The scene is uh, a little bit mysterious. And I'm, I'm not, just like I'm always not always quite sure what to do with the ascension. I'm not quite sure what to make of the, you know, the transfiguration. So Jesus goes up the mountain with two disciples and Three, three disciples. <laughs> I read it on Sunday. I should know this. Um, Peter, James, and John. And all of a sudden, he's he's kind of transfigured, right? There's this this glorious moment. And that's how it's put. 
Yeah, you know, that's like about it. Yeah, looking for. <laughs> okay, explain to me what transfigured is. Right? Yes, and, and yeah. interestingly, they don't go into details about this. You know, they say he was transfigured, and we get a few clues. His radiance, right? yep. he's, he shines brightly, mm-hmm. has something to do with it. But but it's not as cinematic as it would be. You know, if we were writing it all yeah. down today. Yeah. So I think. Like one point, and, and Ascension is a good comparison to make because it isn't really about like a miracle being performed by Jesus. It, it's more a thing happening to Jesus or or maybe put it this way, like a change in how we see him. So the transfiguration, maybe in the simplest terms, Jesus, who is known to his disciples, like they know him in the flesh, like they live with this guy. They eat with him. They're familiar with him. They go up on this mountain with him. And then this this rabbi who they have followed is holding a conference with Moses and Elijah. And this is one of those moments where they have to be thinking like, who who is this? You know, this this same guy that that we spend every day with is now here with Moses and Elijah. And then is transfigured and becomes this radiant heavenly being. So one change you see there is disciples who knew his full humanity now get a glimpse of his full divinity. In that sense, he is transfigured because they see he is more than what they've realized he was. You know, they 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 know it. They've confessed their faith in him, but now they're seeing a glimpse of the reality that they have confessed, right? So there's there's that change in perception. And I think that's something that is mirrored in our own experience. You know, and we see Jesus transformed in our eyes from a, a, a great teacher of moral wisdom to the, the, the one through whom all things were made, our creator and redeemer, he is transfigured in our eyes as well. And they also hear something. So they see something and then they hear this, this word from the father come down. This is my beloved son. There's a connection to another event, which is the baptism. You know, and I think that's the, the common thread there, to my mind, has to do with authority. That authority is being given to the son. We're called to acknowledge the glory of the sun. And the way that this happens is by this heavenly voice making this pronouncement over him. The same way we we remember the baptism, we remember the transfiguration event because of this affirmation of who Jesus is. It's not the only layer there to peel back, but it is a significant one. I mentioned Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are stand-ins, representatives of the law and the prophets. You know, as a shorthand for referring to all of the word of God, the whole of the Old Testament, you would just say the law and the prophets. And now you have the mediator of the Old Covenant, Moses, and and the foremost preeminent prophet, Elijah, meeting with Christ in a scene which is an acknowledgement that he's the one. He is the one that we hoped for. The one that we looked for is here. and his radiance demonstrates that he is the chosen one. He's the Messiah. He's the, the, the servant, the branch 
that Israel has been waiting for. And, you know, I think that there's, there's even another layer there that is on our minds because we've been looking at Haggai and Zechariah. You know, if you think about Peter's response in the transfiguration accounts in Matthew, I believe, he, he wants to build tents or tabernacles for Elijah and for Moses and for Jesus. And reading that story, that was always the head scratcher. What is Peter thinking? You know, like, like I, I'd like to build you some huts. You know, it just seems strange. But the Feast of Tabernacles, that's how it was celebrated. You know, for a period of seven days, uh, they would build tabernacles and they would go out and live in them to remember the time that they had spent in the wilderness. And what's interesting about that is that the Temple of Solomon was dedicated on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. And then as we saw in Haggai, when the temple is being rebuilt, Haggai's second oracle comes during the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's the one that's quoted by the author of Hebrews. That's the one where Haggai says, this is uh, Haggai 2, verses 6 and 7, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. So that vision of the temple that is to come, the, the new temple in the new Jerusalem, it's connected to tabernacles. And now Peter sees Jesus transfigured, and his first thought is, we need to build some tabernacles, because tabernacling is what God's plan is all about. It's about God dwelling with us, and he does so in a tabernacle, in a temple. And so again, you see in the, in the transfiguration, once again, this temple theme that we've been studying in the Old Testament, here it is, front and center. And, and a better pastor than me would have made that point in the sermon. <laughs> this is still great. This is great. It makes me think too of, of John. I mean, you mentioned how Moses and Elijah represent the, the Bible essentially for a, for a Hebrew. John says that in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I, I know enough of, of my, my Greek uh, to know he's using the word tabernacle there, right? You know, the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So in this transfiguration, we see the word of the Old Testament, so to speak. You have Moses and Elijah, but then you have the eternal word of God in the flesh right here, tabernacling, you know, being transfigured before the eyes of the apostles. And it's just everything kind of comes together in one. And the father is saying, yes, this is my son. Uh, it's really an incredible moment. There is this feverish realization that you make when you start studying, you know, biblical theology, where you realize like the, the building is the people essentially, right? That, that the temple is the body of Christ, the person of Jesus, and then the body of Christ in the sense of his people. And it's so profound to realize that that spiritual reality is, is what it's all pointing to. And then you go back and realize the, the thing with the hands, you know, here's the church, this is the steeple, open it up, here's all the people. And you're like, are you kidding me? Like, did we honestly have like the most profound truth 
always in front of our eyes? And the answer is yes, absolutely. But it's good to be reminded over and over again that that's really what's going on, that the whole of the plan of salvation is a plan for God to dwell with us and everything necessary to bring that about, uh, making us into what we ought to be for that to happen. That's what he's doing, beginning to end. Thank you, Cameron, and thank you to everyone who's listening to us. That's all the time we have this week for the commentary. Hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, you can find out more about Grace Presbyterian Church by visiting us online at graceforsufalls.org.